so-called preventive light is Eric. Don't forget to supplement. Med Family is a show about a family journeying through medical school with kids and navigating married life. Tag along to see how we got here and where this journey is taking us. Hello, welcome to another week of our podcast, Med Family. I'm Eric Acker, the host, and Karen Acker here with me again today. Hey guys. Uh, actually recording on time this week due to uh, no work. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, we we um, we got through our first day of emergency medicine. Fourteen more shifts to go, and for basically four weeks left. But overall, not not a bad week. Uh, bad start to the week. We we finished off our vacation by going back to Warner Robins. I was uh, looking forward to the opportunity to play soccer again with some of the old classmates, but they apparently have been slacking. And uh, <laughs> the, 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 there was another individual that would play soccer with us. Occasionally he organizes soccer with a church group, and so he kind of, uh, they've kind of defaulted to letting him kind of start and stop soccer and call it to uh, organize it and whatnot. So essentially the school-based soccer group is no longer a thing it sounds like which is a little sad but i, I did end up getting to visit uh, a good friend of ours and their family and that was a i think a good time i think generally speaking our kids had a good time and it made the six hour car drive worth it worth it yes thank you that's the word i was looking <laughs> for because uh, that's a it's a long drive but it was good to see them good to chat with them uh as usual so um, that was our vacation. Uh, again, time well spent, I think. Uh, not just sitting at home doing nothing and uh, not doing random projects, but actually going out and doing something fun. So I think the kids enjoyed that quite a bit. Um, and then we started emergency medicine on Monday. So we, we did a, a 2 p.m. to midnight shift. Um, and how these shifts kind of work is that there's an overlap of two hours so when I got there at two, the um, the previous the AM shift I think it starts at six AM and goes till four. So they are basically finishing all their work, their notes, um, everything that they need to get done is getting done. They're not taking any new patients in that two hour span, and then we are taking all the new patients. Uh, we are seeing any of the traumas. We we I was on uh, trauma uh, red zone, which is a more trauma area the more acute sick people actively dying well i don't know actively dying there was quite a few patients i i saw that were not actively dying but i think for the first two hours when i got there it was back-to-back um emergencies so people coming in with cardiac arrest in cardiac arrest and uh strokes people coming in with um all status not breathing well so we had like kind of a, a long string of people coming in, uh, a gunshot wound. It wasn't anything to, to get really excited about, but uh, it was exciting for a minute before it was not exciting. But not in the, not in a bad way, like the, the patient was fine. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I was trying to get a, a feel for what, what my role is. I, I've, of course, gotten a crash course by 
uh, the former, well, my, my former classmate, uh, who's an emergency medicine resident, he kind of gave me the crash course of, you know, they might assign you a role and you do that role. Um, it didn't seem like that was the expectation. They didn't really talk to me at all about what my role would be uh, when traumas come in and codes come in. I was basically just kind of left to decide what I wanted to do, um, which is essentially put gloves on and assist in, you know, getting exposure to look at the patient, uh, whether that's cutting off clothes or checking for pulses, but or listening for auscultation if we intubated the patient. So essentially it wasn't wasn't really a vital member of the team at that. <laughs> I was definitely there and I, I tried to participate. Uh, generally speaking, the nurses were doing the chest compressions and I, I do know how much work that is, so I didn't exactly volunteer. They weren't looking for volunteers, mind you. But um, So got to kind of do a bunch of that and then in between the codes, we would go back to our computers and look at who was roomed in any of the rooms in, in the red zone. And then um, one of my seniors would tell me, like, oh, Eric, could you go see this patient? And so I would go see the patient, come back, kind of run it run it by my senior resident and then talk to the attending and then order whatever kind of we talked about. Uh, just kind of a little bit of that. I think I saw, like, four patients. I admitted three um, three of my four. So, uh, one was a very soft admit, I will fully admit. And I told, definitely told the attending <laughs> that much because they're like, okay, I wanted to get signed up for this patient. I'm like, so this is what's going on. And this is why we have the patient here. And we are admitting them because honestly, we would like, uh, the care coordinators to <laughs> work on this patient and maybe see if they can go to a skilled facility. It's not, they're not really being admitted for a medical thing uh, that we really need medic. Like this patient's not medically unstable, but like she can't really do her stuff at home. So we're admitting for you guys to help us out. And he was like, okay. And that was it. He didn't give me a hard time or anything like that. I think it's kind of expected that you don't really push back on certain things. Um, because, I mean, it's good for the patient to try to, we can try to figure out what this patient needs at home uh, or if they need to go to a facility or something like that. But um, other patients were pretty easy. Like one required an orthopedic consult and they they actually called, the, they already were familiar with an orthopedic guy. And so they called him and he just popped into the, uh, the ER and just, saw the patient right there and then so I was like man I didn't have to consult them I had to <laughs> so that was kind of cool and then they they didn't even like act ask me to admit the patient to medicine or anything They're like yeah we'll take care of it and so they admitted the patient for themselves and that was nice that kind of saved me a lot of time uh, <laughs> the but, bonuses to knowing your doctor <laughs> yeah for sure that was definitely a good um that was a lot of fun um and then yeah, we did, did a lot of that. Uh, one patient needed a, multiple, a bunch of consults, and I, um, you know, I did I did my best. <laughs> but it's definitely a a good example of uh, anchoring, I guess would be, would be the term. The patient had come in, and they they were talking about a fistula um, that was clogged, and so I was just like, oh, a fistula clogged for and you know for hemodialysis perfect um and then when i would check when i checked the patient did my physical exam i couldn't really find the fistula like when you see it it's like a little bump and when you put your fingers on it you can feel a pulse but like okay well maybe you know 
where this fistula should be. Maybe it's, you know, I'm not feeling a pulse because, it, you know, it's the nose, so it's uh, thrombosed. So, okay, uh, you know, that's why, they, that's why they came in, so maybe that's why I'm not feeling it. Um, you know, I completely kind of overlooked the fact that there was a catheter going in in that in the area, and I was just like, I don't know, I don't know a lot about nephrology, so uh, I don't know why they would have a catheter going straight into a fistula, but maybe they came from dialysis, maybe they just left it in, I don't know. And um, anyway, this morning on my off time, I got a message from <laughs> one of the, uh, the the consultants asking about it and like, why did it looks like a permacalf. Why did you think it was a fistula? And I was like, because I'm an idiot. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, I my assessment was it looked like a permacalf, but, you know, but what was being reported in from triage, uh, it was permacalf. And, you know, I, I just, I just kind of stuck, stuck, stuck with what triage was saying, thinking that they probably kind of knew what they were doing. And, uh, I wasn't apparently knowledgeable on fistulas, permacaps, and all that fun stuff, which, you know, if I would have just Googled, I probably could have found the answer pretty easily. Uh, so anyway, uh, four patients seen, three admitted, one discharged, um, multiple traumas that came in. I was not responsible for any of them. Um, and then the third year walked me through how to do a ultrasound-guided um, peripheral line placement. Uh, so if you if you need to try to find out get a line placed and the nurses have a, have a hard time getting IV access, how to use the ultrasound to do all that. Uh, I think the expectation was he's like I'll show you this this time and kind of refresh your memory and then the next time you can do it. So I think the expectation is is next time I get to do it on my, on my own, which. We will see. <laughs> it's a little terrifying. No, it's not. Well, it's just like, you're just sticking a needle in and yeah. um, using the ultrasound to find a vein. And it's like maybe, I don't know, maybe a few millimeters deep or a centimeter deep. Um, so it's the worst that you can do is miss. Yep. I mean, there's worse things you can do, honestly. But like you could miss and then the patient's uncomfortable while you are fishing around for a vein. Um, or you can blow the vein, which... Then you just move up. Or you can move somewhere else. Or you can just be like, okay, well, I tried. Um, some of the things I, I kind of notice, and I don't know, this is not meant to be a, anything derogatory, but I noticed like when we were doing some of the codes, when they were trying to get IV access, uh, it's hard to do on like femoral lines and stuff like that because um, I think they were going relatively blind because it's kind of hard to use the ultrasound while people are doing chest compressions. Um, so a couple of the attending and the, uh, senior tried doing femoral lines and they were going blind, uh, they were kind of going at it blind. And, uh, I think the attending didn't, didn't stick it. And then the senior decided the third year, third or fourth year, I can't remember. Uh, he, he tried and I think he ended up getting the artery. Um, not, not necessarily a bad thing. It's just not useful um <laughs> the things you put in the artery things things that you put in the veins <laughs> so um which i guess if you hit the artery on the femoral line just go more medial i think i think navel is the acronym nerve artery vein empty space lymphatics yeah so i believe that's lateral to medial so if you hit the artery go more medial 
but in any case that uh, that code did not um, did not progress so uh, not because of the line or anything like that it was I don't know, you, you get you get a lot of uh, traumas or not traumas uh, like codes where patients come in in cardiac arrest um, sometimes they're found down and, and you don't know how long they've you been don't down. Know how long they've been down CPR was begun in the field they were brought to the hospital multiple rounds of CPR and epinephrine were tried and so you get them and it's like okay we'll try a few rounds ourselves we'll try some drugs we'll pull out the ultrasound uh, look at the heart you know I went during pulse checks they'll put the ultrasound on the, the chest and take a look and see if they can see the wall moving of the heart and if it's not if it's not moving sometimes you can feel obviously we're feeling for the pulses so you can feel pulses but sometimes the ultrasound gives you kind of a visual structural is the heart even trying to move uh, on its own and then i think yes there's some complications like where epinephrine is used and you can kind of see like this twitching of the heart which isn't necessarily it's not a, a coordinated contraction of the heart muscle so um i think something things to see and it was interesting to see but obviously when patients are found down for an extended period of time it um resuscitation is pretty um i think the, the, i don't know what the statistics are but i think the successful resuscitation is pretty low uh, in a lot of those patients so it's it's always sad you know you don't want to lose any patient but at the same time it's like this is we do the best we can as medical professionals, um, try to save lives as much as we can, but at the end of the day, we're, we're not gods. We can't, uh, we can't bring everybody back. Yeah, well, I don't know if it, in North Carolina, if um, our ambulance is allowed to pronounce. Uh, I don't think so. I think, you, I think it has to be... I, I, don't, I don't know all the rules, to be completely honest. Okay. I, I think like... I think there are some pretty obvious, like, oh, this patient's, like, cold as a, you know, cold mm -hmm. as a bone or whatever. I don't know what the, they're cold. Uh, and they've probably been down and dead for, like, obviously dead. Maybe they don't have to bring him to the hospital. But um, I don't know. I don't know the rules in and out. I know there are some things I didn't know about, like, uh, if a patient goes DNR and they, they start to... Um, oh gosh deteriorate de uh, desaturate and of course you're, you're doing your basic things such an providing air you're not really providing the uh, intubation but maybe providing non-invasive oxygen or something like that yeah. that if they eventually do die and there's no doctors around um two nurses can declare oh. time of death uh, again with the caveat that the patient is dnr on top of everything else so uh, that was that was new. I've seen it a couple of times now. I've just notes, you know, with the nurses like the patient is already kind of or the patient like in comfort care, mm -hmm. uh, especially I think especially in comfort care where we are not actually providing any medical interventions like DNR. You still provide medical interventions, just short. You don't you stop short at like intubation and, and CPR, but like pressors can be considered okay. In DNR patients, I mean, obviously these are questions and conversations you have with the family if you can beforehand, but um, so obviously DNR doesn't mean don't do anything. Uh, it means, you know, do not resuscitate uh, or intubate. Um, so uh, 
so that's definitely in comfort care where you're not actually providing any medical intervention you're just providing comfort measures so pain control um i think feeding them is okay if it's like a therapeutic i think they use they use some kind of strange word for feeding like if if they want to eat something then you can give them food even even though there's a higher risk for them aspirating because you get older more demented you're able to protect your airway um it seems like it happens quite a bit um and it's like a common cause of of a patient's demise in the hospital um is when they they aspirate and uh, obviously there's precautions we try to take to to minimize that as much as possible but it does happen um so in those cases yeah dnr uh, uh comfort care uh, doctors won't even get notified. I think there was one patient that just um, died overnight, and the doctor on on duty didn't even get notified. In the morning, of course, we we got notified on the team. They go by, yeah. By the way, that patient passed away. I mean, they they still they don't just leave the body there. Obviously, they they take care of it, but we we're not required to go up and do a a complete death exam or anything like that. So. Again, different rules, different. I'm not completely an expert. These are those kind of things I learned peripherally as not not my patient, not my not uh, not something I've had to do, but things I've seen while I've been on these teams. Um, so let's see. That was just one shift to the ED. So I have <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy. I, I start one day, and then I have today, so Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday off. I go back on Friday. You're going to do Friday, Saturday, sun, Saturday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, I think. Yeah, if not then I Sunday, like, then you're, you don't get off until like Sunday morning or something like that. Uh, something I, like that. Yeah. I, th- I thought I was like on these like... He works to, mostly to, weekends. Yeah, 2 to 12. Like, but I thought like next week I have like five days off in a row or something, something ridiculous like that. Um, like it... It, I'm kind of light on the uh, on shifts in the earlier part of my rotation where I, I just kind of feel like I'm <laughs> I come in and then they yeah so I'm off the next three days and then I work Friday Saturday I'm off Sunday Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday and then I'll work five days in a row yeah and then I'll have two days off a day off two days on that's oh, two days off, two days on, two one day off, two days on, and two days off, and then three days on, and I'm done. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I I really can't complain about the schedule. Compl- uh, honestly, like, if I was on service, I would only have one day off a week. Like I'll be six days on, one day off, and maybe I'll get a golden weekend, quote unquote, and to people who are not <laughs> in internal medicine or not in medicine, a golden weekend just means a weekend. Um, so I would Saturday and Sunday both. Yes, about two days in a row, the luxury. Um, whereas being on emergency medicine, you know, I, again next week I have five days off in a row, and even on the worst week I get like three days off. Like, but I like I work, I have one day off, two days on, two days off, two days on, something like that. And it's like it's really not that bad. Cannot complain. Uh, so yeah, it's um, worked out pretty well. Um, We've managed to work a lot of appointments in on Eric's days off, unfortunately for yeah. him. Yeah, I mean, but it only really stinks when you like get off late at night, or if you're doing like night shift. Like I'm, I'm what they call, I think the PM. I I forget. I'm doing. 
I forget what they call it. Like there's like AM, mid, and then and PM, I think, or, or nights or something like that. So I might be mid, but just because it's like a two to two to twelve. I think the majority of your shifts are um, actually ten to eight if you count them out. Um, but you do have a, a few of the mornings, which is like the six to four. I, um, and then eight. I have a six to four. No, I have like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I have seven shifts out of six to four. So actually not, not oh. terrible. That's almost half of my shifts. Um, I do have three in a row that are 10 PM to 8 AM. Um, but again, that's kind of three in a row. So it. You kind of get Could on that schedule. Could be a lot schedule. worse, legitimately. Yeah. Um, but really, the worst one, and actually, that's not is really bad. Ten to eight. Um, ten to eight is like the worst one, legitimately, um, just because it's overnight and that your sleeping schedule is going to be kind of nutty. Um, but uh, I'm trying to look the at five this. days in a row, I think he starts at like he does a six to six four, to four, and then the next to, shift is the two to. Two, 2 to 12. 12, and then the next shift is the 10, 10 to 8 a.m. Yeah, which if you think about it, though, I get off at, let's say I get off at 4 p.m., I, of course, have the entire night, and I don't have to get back until 2 p.m. the next day, um, and then I'm off at midnight, but I don't have to be back until 10 p.m., so I have basically 12 hours plus, um, I have like almost 24 hours almost at that point. And then I do obvious, but again, like obviously, I get done at eight a.m. on on my day off, quote unquote. So I'll I'll sleep probably the rest of the day, um, and then I do have another That's what day he off. Thinks because so, there's a doctor's appointment. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> uh, I'll sleep when I can, and then on the next day I'll have a day off, and then I'll be back. And you know, so like technically, you could make the argument I only have one day off, but again, I can't really complain. The work isn't terrible. Um, I don't... It goes by quickly. It does go by quickly, especially if you're in red zone. I've heard green zone's a little slower. Um, I did somehow dodge a lot of the psych patients. There was definitely a good number of psych patients for various you know, psychological issues. And um, I know that's definitely a, a thing in medicine. It's becoming more and more of a thing in medicine. And uh, I, know, I, I know I need to get more comfortable with it, but like sometimes you just... You just don't want to, uh, <laughs> like, especially when you you're listening to them come in and they're just like yelling and hollering and threatening to kill people and it's just like oh, I would rather not. Um, but that is medicine. You can't necessarily just say no. But and my, my seniors never weren't like, hey, go see the psych patient. Like, they, they I don't know. I, I know. I think they would probably rather me just pick patients and go and. Uh, it was, yes, Monday was my first day, so I, w- I wasn't really sure how the flow was going to be going and what they really expected of me. Um, the second year, who's technically a third, he, was, he had a transition year, and uh, is that in the second year of his EM residency, he he was super cool. He helped. He kind of gave me the tour, but he was like, you know, the, the really the big purpose we want you to get out of this rotation is to understand what we do in the ED. And and to appreciate what we do down here, so that you don't complain about us when when the patient goes upstairs, uh, and I and I do see their point to a large extent. I mean, uh, their general point is, is like we get a patient with a list of complaints, and 
you know, they could, the simplest explanation upstairs is the most likely explanation. However, in the ED, they could have any and all of the above. Um, I think there's a different way he phrased it, but essentially patients can come up with lots of complaints and it can be multiple issues. And we're there doing kind of a workup, trying to figure out like, what, what is this patient going to actively die on us? And then once we kind of have a, a good picture, whether the patient needs to be evaluated more or go to the hospital, get further treatment, then we admit the patient. So like, why we didn't do a full and complete extra workup? Why do we? Why didn't we order these extra labs? Well, because <laughs> we were busy, and he's like, "We really want you to get the appreciation." And I really did get that yesterday, where it's like you're doing, you're working on a patient, getting them intubated, trying to get CPR going, trying to revive them, and then right after you're done with that, you have another code, and then after that, you can maybe quickly go see another patient in the one of the rooms, and like you're just constantly jumping from one task to the next. So like the idea that you can spend an ample amount of time with one patient and know everything about them and do a deep chart dive is maybe not... Realistic. For me, as an intern, it seems daunting, and I'm not sure if that's really possible. So I can appreciate it from that standpoint. Um, so... I, lot, lots to learn uh, and like Karen said it goes by quickly so that's kind of a nice thing uh, <laughs> um, but uh, overall um, you know look, trying to learn as much as I can and I think it's another one of those opportunities where you might be able to do procedures um, might be able to do a lot of things because so the ED they let you do a lot of stuff the attendings will watch you do central lines and all sorts of things so I'm hoping to get my hands on some of that procedure stuff and see if I can't uh, try some try some of that and get a little bit more comfortable with the ultrasound and whatnot. I know as a program, they do have the ultrasound machine and they do have classes and we do uh, on our clinical weeks practice with the ultrasound, but like nothing really beats real world experience. So that's the game plan, but we have, uh, I mean, one shift down, 14 more to go. So we have, <laughs> we have a little bit more time. <laughs> yes. I mean, uh, this will be good because Eric, so Eric did take, I think we said this last week, Eric did take his practice exam for step three. Oh, yes. He did pass. Um, the new world self-assessment two. Uh, there's a one, but apparently all the wisdom online is that one is uh, a much harder and not as the scoring on it isn't as um, reliable or doesn't correlate well with the actual exam so I decided not to shatter any confidence that I had and <laughs> with a self-assessment too um, sorry go ahead yeah so um, he did pass that so uh, that's not not by our large margin let's be honest no but it's good going forward you kind of know where you're where you're at and then um, we did get his test scheduled. Yes, we finally sat down and picked two terrible dates and <laughs> two of the least objectionable dates. Yes. Because uh, SEP 3 is a two-part two uh, uh, exam. Yes, and I think you need to let the program know. I did. Oh, okay, beautiful. Um, and then... Uh, I, so I wanted to explain. I, I picked two of the least objectionable. Obviously, I don't want to do this exam uh, nobody wants to sit there for eight hours for two days in a row. Um, I think if I was a, a much more prepared person, I would have probably tried to squeeze it in 
during my ED rotation because I have all these extra gaps as, as we just talked about. But that didn't happen. Um, so Debbie was a procrastinator. I was a little bit of a procrastinator <laughs> for sure. Um, and so I, I, my next, so after ED, I do continuity clinic. I don't think I can take too much time out of my continuity clinic at this point. And then I go to nights for two weeks. And then I go to inpatient rounds again. So I will be, I think I, I plan to, d- doing step three during nights is stupid. Um, and <laughs> I wouldn't have, like, you, your sleep cycle is completely off. And then, like, instead of trying to, on one of your days off, or taking two days off, essentially, uh, instead of trying to get, like, some rest, you're like, oh, no, I'm going to try to get up at a completely different time than I've been getting up for the last week and then taking a, a giant exam. Like, that doesn't sound like a smart idea, so I did not choose to do that. And then uh, I did choose to do it during my inpatient rotation, which, depending on how my rotation, my program sees everything, I did let them know, uh, those might be my two days off in that two-week period, which would be kind of a bummer, but we will take what we can get. But it's like right before Christmas, so I'll definitely have some time off. Oh, I mean, I have, I think I have clinic week of Christmas, so I think I, I get the week, the Monday, not the week, I get the Monday Christmas falls on off from continuity clinic, so I will at least have a day off. Yes. And clinic, clinic week is like He gets half. out of wrapping all the gifts, you know? <laughs> oh, yes, that was, because uh, Karen definitely relies on me to wrap all the gifts, because <laughs> my fantastic wrapping skills is <sighs> anywho, anywho. So we have a step three date we have booked it and it's always a good motivator to actually not waste time on other things not surf the interwebs and actually just do questions and do the ccs cases so that's what we will be doing <laughs> for the foreseeable what future. Eric doing, yes. i will be doing so um but i mean it's good now that he's got a date he's probably a little bit more motivated to utilize the time that he has for this and then we can work on other projects and stuff and things after the test um but it'll be good to end the year having pretty much everything done that you have to get done yeah, I mean, unfortunately, the disadvantage is going to be that I think I do have to have that case report or at least a post-presentation sometime in January. At least I think the presentation is in January or February, but I think we're due to have that in sometime in the next month or two. So I'll, I will have to kind of set, set aside some time to do the research components. Yeah, um, that was but, the other thing that I was going to mention. So Eric is working with... One of the other interns, um, he has brought a case forth, and then Eric finally got his... Got my consent. Consent. So (laughs) they are working together on both cases. I think one is going to be used for... Uh, they have to do something for Campbell University. Yeah, Campbell and then, University has like a research symposium. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to do a poster presentation there. You can... Uh, I've been told, uh, talked to our research coordinator about this sort of thing, but uh, you can do the post presentation and then 
change the title and then do an actual publication, try to send it to a, a pub, um, to a magazine or journal oh. and try to get it published. So you so could theoretically end up getting like two. Uh, so, uh, if we, we play our cards right, we could have as little as two public, like one, one, uh, publication and one, uh, presentation at a, a symposium or we can have uh like four i mean it depends on how we how we work it so that is the game plan do you have a certain number per year or is it just a certain, I think it's like certain one, number one per year oh, okay i didn't know if it was just a certain number over your total but like time i i'm angling to uh, make myself competitive for cardiology and the other uh, the other resident I'm working with is trying to get into, he's looking at uh, critical care. So uh, we both are trying to get into relatively competitive fellowships. So he, he's going to need help. So we're, we're helping each other out here. Uh, it just, I think, turns out they're both neural, uh, neurology-related topics, which uh, is interesting because that's neither of what we are looking to go into. But it's, uh, you know, publication is publication. So well, and it's kind of what you got at the beginning, and, and they're interesting cases. So yeah, we will hopefully that adds a little extra information to the the medical knowledge out there. So um, we've been neglecting interviews for some time here. Yeah. Um, but I guess some regular housekeeping things here. You get those ERAS emails and you get the no reply at you know no reply at eras.com or whatever it was and like we mentioned i get online when you get that email go in and schedule if especially if it's like and obviously you're going to get like rejection you know you drop 100 applications you're going to get a few rejections <laughs> so um but the ones that are giving you an interview like you go online and like you schedule it please please for the love of all that is uh, read the instructions. Uh, <laughs> read the instructions, schedule it, and schedule it, and then like actually schedule. Don't be, don't just like. I think I've heard a story of somebody who just looked at interview dates and then just showed up to one of them, and but didn't actually like book it. So like, don't do that. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> um, every little thing you're going to be judged on. And things that can come across as like incompetence or Laziness. unprofessionalism, just just not like not the caliber that you would expect from a doctor, the attention to detail uh, that they would hope that they would want out of their doctors. Like you don't want to give them an opportunity to just cross your name off, um, especially after they put you down for an interview. Like the interview is like. It doesn't matter. I mean, it does still matter. Your board scores and everything still kind of matter. But, like, if they offered you an interview, you have a shot. Like, you, you're you now in the, I think, I don't know. I think, my, was it my program that had, like, 1,400 yeah. uh, applications? Um, and so they had to whittle it down to a certain number of um, interviews. And so, like, you made a cut and so now you're competing. If you can knock the interview out of the park, you can uh, really level the playing field for yourself that they might actually really consider 
you giving you a spot and ranking you in a, in a position that would give you a really competitive edge on getting matched, which is, of course, the end goal for everybody who is entering the match. Uh, so once you get an interview, you don't want to blow it. <laughs> so don't, don't blow it. Pay attention and read. And I, I think... Um, so there's all sorts of different things I've heard people do for interviews. And obviously I am no interview expert. I don't think I interview particularly great. I, I think honestly, when my program director was talking about do's and don'ts of interviews, um, I could have swore that some of the things he said, don't do, I did. Um, <laughs> and so I was feeling a little self-conscious. Like I think he was talking about how, some people when asked like, why do you want to go to this program? Or, you know, why do you want to come to Fayetteville? And people will be like, well, you're an hour and a half from the beach. You're in the, they kind of give like a, a map application, like where's where. <laughs> and I was like, I almost, I swear I probably have done that on like one of my interviews or if not that, if not the Campbell interview, like, Oh, you're not too far from this location. You're not too far from this location. It's like, ooh, I don't. Yeah, that's not that. That's not good. Like, that's not really a good <laughs> good reason to go somewhere. It's like, oh, I've opened up the map application. I looked at the attractions, and I now know I'm an hour from the major airport in the area. It's like, well, that's not <laughs> again not a good. That doesn't make the program feel like you actually want to be there. Um, I've heard of people like finding out all the most common questions you get asked and writing out answers to all of them. And to be fair, I think I did some of that. I think I did look at some, I think it's always good to be a little prepared, but like I've heard people having like pages upon pages of uh, questions and how they would answer it. And I think it's again, good to be prepared. Um, but it doesn't want to sound robotic. Yeah, you need to sound relatively organic on certain things, and you need to be able to answer a lot of these questions. And you have to be also prepared for the ethical questions. You know, if you were in a situation where so and so did this, what would you do? And you and you disagreed, and what would you do? Like, you do need to be prepared for those questions because you're going to get asked those, and then you're going to get asked questions about when you struggled about something or when. Um, when you saw a conflict of interest, I, you get the, some of them I think are kind of bogus and I think they're dumb because like, I think I was asked about like when I saw something that I thought was unethical and what did I do about it? And it's just like, I don't think I've ever seen any of my attendings or doctors do anything like egregiously unethical that, and especially like, why would I, <laughs> why would I air that out in an interview? Even if I did it, it comes especially if it's like not like clear cut if it's if it's like uh, to be fair i've heard of unethical things um but none of my attendings i don't think had committed them it was always like second hand i've heard about attendings who um in third and fourth year medical school it was like that's that seems unethical but like i'm it's third hand like i i can't really like, what am I going to do about it? Uh, <laughs> I, I wasn't involved. I, it's just someone else's story. And uh, it, you've been around medical students long enough. You know, people lie and embellish. It's unfortunate, like, especially about, like, their grades and stuff like that. Sometimes they... Anyway, that's off topic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, All this to say, prepare as best you can, but try and be as genuine or, and organic as possible. And... 
do you, do you realize that what you do, like if you interview in a car while you're driving somewhere, that may have ramifications on whether or not you get get yeah. uh, placed there or not, or um, I I think yeah I mean but, obviously like good camera quality, good lighting, um, good internet connection. Don't be like driving down the freeway or like a passenger in a car driving down the freeway. Like try to set yourself up to make it seem at least appear that you have taken this interview very seriously, that you are a professional. Um, and again, like you were setting the stage for this like high stakes interview. It means a lot. And I, I think for me anyway, that makes me very anxious and that makes me very nervous. I'm going to screw it up. And, uh, <laughs> when you get a little bit more into your head like that, you can potentially screw it up. Uh, but the things that kind of, I guess, keep in mind, uh, as well at the same time with all this other stuff is that oftentimes during the interview, they're kind of gauging can you hold a conversation with me for 10 minutes, 20 minutes? Uh, at the end of the conversation, is it like a whole bunch of dead space? Is it a bunch of, you know, like I asked a question, you gave me a short answer. I asked a question, you gave me a really short answer. And like, it's just, there's like stiffness to it. You can't have a conversation. You can't connect on anything um, because they can come across as like, well, this guy can't even hold a conversation, you know, for 10 minutes. Like, I don't know. I, I don't know if I want to spend three years with this guy. Like, uh, and then on top of that, uh, oftentimes programs will look at, um, they want to know if you're teachable and they want to know if you can get along with them and, and quote unquote fit in with their culture. Uh, and it, that, that can be kind of a trickier and stickier depending on the specialty and <laughs> um, depending on the program and the program personality. I don't know how you can prepare for that, to be completely honest, but at the very least, uh, being able to be teachable is certainly something, uh, if you can try to find a way to get that across, uh, I think that's definitely beneficial because uh, I think I, multiple programs had told me um, when, I, when asked during interviews, they said, and, and this is also people I've talked to who are you know, residents and whatnot, they, they, they feel like they could teach you everything that you need to know about medicine like you, you obviously went to medical school. You're you're not dumb, <laughs> so you, you've gotten this far, so you should be able to retain information and do things. Their job is to teach you all that. Their job is to teach you how to practice medicine. Now they're just looking for someone who's teachable, and so if you can't, if you're not, if you come across as not teachable, that's probably not going to work. Yeah. Well, and they want to enjoy their job, so if they find you. Irritating. Irritating. They're not gonna. They're not gonna want you, right? And again, you you have ten. Maybe, maybe you're not an irritating person, and like no, you have you have ten minutes to figure out how to construe. I'm not irritating. <laughs> <laughs> well, and everybody is irritating at some point, especially when you're training. I did a lot of training uh, people, and sometimes it's just frustrating when people don't get it. So you're gonna irritate your attendings or your second years or your third years, your first year, that's just part of it. But like you as a person, whether or not you click, I think is probably more of what they're yeah, looking they, for. They want to be like, I can get along with this guy for the one to two years. I'll have him around and he's not going to cause problems. And obviously like sometimes the bigger the program, the laxer that can be like, cause like you have 20 residents you can hide, like, oh, that irritating person, I don't see him hardly ever. But, like, when it's, like, six people, 
it becomes a bigger deal. And especially like the surgicals where it's like three, <laughs> it becomes yeah. a big deal. Like they want to make sure you're going to pull your weight and you're not going to be an, a pain in the butt. So, um, but it, so essentially you're trying to like likability, you're trying to put, put across, um, teachability and then like the fact that you can carry on a conversation. So do, do they find you interesting? Can you, can you talk about something that you're passionate about? Um, and they can see that passion and it's not offensive. Uh, <laughs> then I think that goes a long way. And especially like there's a lot of stiff people, uh, yeah. in medical school. So that's kind of your, your general goals. Like a lot of the prep work you can do at any point, a lot of the professional, appearing professional, good quality, lighting quality, that's just preparation. Um, being engaged in the interview and it's hard to do on zoom but that's essentially your challenge essentially yeah and always assume you're being watched always assume you're being watched even if you're not in an interview um the one thing that i would kind of bring back from the last time we talked about interviews is utilize the proctors or the preceptors that you've already had and ask them what they liked about their program or what they would look or what they would ask um, for about in a program because oh, you'll yeah. get a lot of questions that you wouldn't think to ask yourself. And um, Reddit doesn't always give you. <laughs> yeah, and that's not a pre-Reddit canned question that everybody else is if asking. If you had $5 million, how would you make <laughs> your program better? Great, I got asked this a thousand times this season. Fantastic, I get to answer it again. Yeah, like, so... <laughs> <laughs> have, have genuine questions. Um, they they do find it. And this again, this is one of those like pet peeves of mine. They programs want you to be able to ask questions and be prepared with questions. Um, I tended, I found a few questions that I like to ask just in general because I think it either spoke to how uh, the mindset of the program and it also spoke to them giving advice that. Even if I didn't match there, even if they didn't rank me, I could walk away with a little bit of information and something I could work on, and which was generally like, what, what do you recommend uh, for your medical students do in order to make themselves success, set themselves up to be successful in intern year? Uh, and you get a wide range of answers to that. But that was just kind of a general question because it's sometimes hard to find very specific ones on programs that have minimal website information. Uh, but having questions is good but my pet peeve is essentially like you get you interview like six people over the course of like five hours and like each one like leaves half the time for your questions and just like my gosh i i have asked every question i could i have all these questions that were very specific to the program but i burned through them in the like the first three people but i still got three more people to talk to and I feel dumb asking the same question, especially if it was just like, what's your, uh, how, how do I get procedure time in your program? Like what's, what's the opportunities to do procedures like central lines, IJs, all that fun stuff. And they're like, yeah, you do it in the ICU rotation. And it's like, okay, great. I'm going to ask that to the next five people. That seems like really dumb. Uh, <laughs> maybe not the best use of your question time, but at the same time, it's like, I don't have 20 minutes or, you know, three hours worth of questions to talk about. So that, that can be kind of frustrating, especially when they, when you seem to be going on forever. 
So uh, be prepared for that. That kind of stinks. Um, again, being on Zoom, trying to trying to fill the void for 20 minutes without saying something stupid <laughs> it can be difficult for people like me. Um, uh, what else? I know, I know some people like the tell me about yourself. And it's like I... I appreciate it and I, d- I don't appreciate it because sometimes it's like I wrote you a personal statement and, you know, I spent a lot of time on that and that's basically me telling, me telling you about myself and sometimes when you ask me that, I'm going to paraphrase a lot from my personal statement and... Um, Theoretically, you've already read it. Hopefully, you've already read it and obviously sometimes interviewers get pulled in at the last minute and they haven't had a chance to read your personal statement. But I kind of hate that question because it's like, okay, what do I focus on for my personal statement I want to talk about? Um, so just be prepared for like a, the five-minute elevator pitch, but again, not make it sound like you've rehearsed it. Um, <laughs> and that's difficult. And then obviously, remember that it's, it's a conversation. It's not, you know, you're not filibustering the uh, the interview. So <laughs> you don't, don't take forever to answer a question. Uh, like just rambling on like I am right now uh, <laughs> to fill the void, um, give them an opportunity to ask more questions or have a conversation. So, cause that will also end up being kind of a turnoff if they feel like I only got through one of my questions because they spent 10 minutes talking about the scenario that I pitched to them and the pros and cons of all the different things. It's like, well, it's great that you had it well thought out, but you spent 20 minutes talking about it and I didn't get to say a single word. Yeah. Like, don't filibuster your own interview. No. And just remember, I, I think Eric and I keep getting reminded of this. The world is very small. <laughs> you can most likely find something in common with anybody, even if they are vastly different than you. Um, bringing it full circle, <laughs> Eric's second year that he was working with in the ED, like his wife... Is from, from, Vancouver. from Vancouver, from the same area, and like, same and like we town area. Yeah, honestly, we we Facebook stalked her, and oh, yeah. both of us were like, oh. And Karen recognizes her. I, I don't recognize her. her I don't think I've but I recognize met her. like a ton of her friends because like I used to hang out with these people. Yeah, small world, <laughs> small world, so incredibly tiny. So. Anywho, um, we have been talking for a while now. Uh, Almost 50 minutes. Any other, I guess, before we jump off of the interview, I guess any other thoughts on interviews or, um, yeah, I think that's, sorry, I know I'm dragging it back and I'm not sure where I'm going to go with it, but. (laughs) I think we covered most of it. Just be yourself. Um, because Unless yourself sucks, then be someone else. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, don't do that. be yourself because, <laughs> I mean, they're hiring you and if you turn out to be somebody different once once you well, start... They're already, they're already contractually obligated to have you. They can still fire you. Uh, <laughs> but remember everything that's on your application. Everything that you put on it is fair game to talk about. Uh, so just be aware of what you wrote down and then be willing to chop, talk about it. And obviously don't, if you don't put anything on your application that you were like, I don't know anything about, I just happened to be working on that research, but I don't know anything about the research. Like that's probably not something you should have put on your application. Obviously it's too late at this point, but <laughs> be prepared to talk about everything. Know your application forwards and backwards because 
um, they you don't want to come across as misconstruing any of your experiences or anything like that to pad your application because then they might you don't want people to think that you lied because um, that can cause either they can report you to the uh, match or ERAS uh, and you don't want that and or they could just immediately blacklist you and you don't want that either so um, know everything you got everything on the application don't misrepresent anything and don't lie obviously uh, <laughs> what else oh um, kind of you because you're evaluating the programs as well I mean it's tough because like obviously you rank you're going to rank them and where you actually want to go but how do you evaluate programs when you have limited exposure to them through a zoom meeting uh i would say talking like to me there's like red flags and i think you can go on reddit um and find where some people talk about programs and the ins and outs. Sometimes going to the resident meeting, meet and greets, I think sometimes they, they do take attendance, so it's probably a good idea to go to them. Uh, they are a waste of time, but <laughs> uh, this is the season where you just play the game. Um, it's well, a wa- I say it's a waste of time because you get people asking ridiculous questions, questions that just kind of makes you want to shoot, shoot yourself beca- because it's like, just look it up. Like, where do you guys have a target in the city? It's like, it, yes. Like, pull up the map application and look at it. And, like, or asking that kind of weird questions that are like, just like you ask enough questions that so they're like, oh, that's uh, that's Josh over there. Like, like, honestly, a lot of these residents are probably like in the middle of a shift, so they're probably not going to remember your name very much. And uh, so I don't know. Uh, go to it's obviously I've heard of programs taking attendance at these resident meet and greets. So I'm definitely not going to say don't. I don't know enough insider information whether it makes or breaks an applicant. But um, you should probably go learn, try to learn a little bit. But just remember that it's going to be incredibly boring, and people are going to be uh, what I like, like to call peacocking. Uh, trying to make themselves look really good for no apparent reason. But I guess what I think you're trying to get at is watch the residents, see how they interact with each other, see how they interact with staff, and figure out if that's how you want to be as a resident. Because that even you're probably seeing the best side of them at that point um, because those residents were picked up for a purpose. Um, or they volunteered. Or they volunteered. So if the resident seems worn out and tired and grumpy and just... Has some slight... Sometimes it's not always what they say is what they don't say about the program. So just kind of be... And that's kind of hard because you might have a long list of things you're looking for in the program and they may not talk about it. So I'm not trying to say like just because they don't talk about it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But like I kind of thought... I, I kind of went for this mentality. If if during the resident meet and greet or sometimes you have a resident interview uh, slot that, during your interview day, if the resident doesn't say anything about his fellow residents, whether he likes them or they hang out, like, I, I mean, you don't have to be a very social person. You don't have to hang out with your residents. But it definitely, I think, goes to show, like, how the program builds um, camaraderie or builds team Um 
if your residents kind of act like, well, I just, I show up to work and I go home and we don't hang out with each other. They don't say anything about how much they like working with each other. That could be a potential red flag of like, maybe this program is a little bit more malignant. Maybe the residents are a little bit more cutthroat. Um, Cause no, no programs uh, very rarely, I should say, I did, I did hear about one instance where a resident flat out just said he hated the program, but uh, not my program, but a completely different one. But Rarely will you get a resident that will trash their program, so you kind of kind of have to look for the what they don't say sort of stuff um, that could be potentially red flags. I tend to think programs that make you take quizzes or test try to test your knowledge are I don't really love it. I think there there are some programs that make you write soap notes, and I know they have their general reasons why like i want to make sure this person knows how to write a basic soap note but it's like you can teach that again like it's something you do learn in medical school in general but like people are nervous during interviews they're, they're putting their entire career in front of them and then be like here pop quiz like that that kind of stinks that's kind of poor that's kind of poor in my opinion I, i've heard of programs pulling up an ECG and being like, read this ECG. And it's like, my, my guy, like <laughs> I'm nervous. So I don't know if I'm going to read it a hundred percent accurate. Uh, especially if there's any sort of nuance with it. You're not a cardiologist, you know, you're a fourth year medical student. Um, but I mean, again, this is general. I think there is some specialties where it is customary during the interview that they will actually ask you to read x-rays. So like orthopedics, I believe, they will actually pull up x-rays during the interview and ask you to read it. But that is also kind of cultural for orthopedics because uh, a lot of people who go into orthopedics go to sub-eyes, multiple sub-eyes in the fourth year. And part of your sub-eyes in your fourth year are fracture conferences and stuff like that. So uh, we're medical students. You should students, be used to doing it. Well, medical students are called out during <laughs> during the rotation to read x-rays and you get better and better at it. So like that, it's not really a, a beyond the pale, in my opinion. I think just kind of check in on the specialty and what's like customary during interviews. Uh, my general rule of thumb is that programs that try to quiz you um, are probably not ones you would really want to be going to. If they're trying to make you feel uncomfortable during the interview, it's probably not a program you want to be. <laughs> Because they're probably not going to change uh, when you're a resident. If they are, yeah. Anyway, you get the, the idea. So look for red flags because uh, you know, as much as they are evaluating you, you are evaluating them, uh, and you will rank them accordingly. And if you hated them, maybe you don't rank them. It's up to you. Um, like Karen said, we are going long. <laughs> so <laughs> I just remember we mentioned it a couple weeks ago. And I just didn't want to yeah. neglect the topic. Yeah. So we'll be back next week. Yes. And we hope that you guys are getting lots of interviews and that they are going well. All right. If you like our podcast, like it on any of the major podcasting platforms, any questions or inquiries, you can send them to MedFamilyMD on Instagram. We will see you guys next week. Bye.